0: From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. I'm Lenny Reinhart, and today we are discussing the recent drug decriminalization measures passed during the Oregon general election. Since this issue demonstrates a huge conflict between state and federal law, I have two guests all the way from Portland, Oregon, to provide these two different perspectives. I'm speaking with Matt McHenry, partner at the law firm of Levine & McHenry, who focuses on federal cases. I'm also joined by Thalia Sadie, who serves as an attorney with the Metropolitan Public Defender where she deals in state matters. Thalia and Matt, welcome to The Podvocate. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. For having us. Absolutely. And uh, Thalia, we'll start with you. Uh, Tell us about yourself, your practice, and your involvement with uh, narcotics or drug cases.
1: I have been with Metropolitan Public Defender's Office for the last 10 and a half years. Mm. I started off uh, at a boutique private firm doing private criminal defense but my heart was in public defense and I hated billing and I wanted the trial experience. I moved over to the public defender's office and I started in one of our Washington County, which is a very conservative county in Oregon and gained a lot of trial experience there, worked misdemeanors, juvenile cases, uh, specialty courts then transferred downtown to our Multnomah County office um, and handled a felony caseload. I've since start, I've been most recently doing the attorney training and, and been in management at our office. And as part of our attorney training, I've been involved in a lot of the policy issues. And so while I've handled a lot of drug, felony level drug cases, Um, I've also been highly involved in some of the policy and um, application of what comes next after about measure 110 was passed. So um, I've been largely a part of those conversations and figuring out uh, what happens with all the cases that have been going on uh, that had previously been charged. Um, And um, so that's kind of my involvement for... in for what's happening in Oregon and Portland specifically right
0: now. So it's fair to say that you have a mix of both practical experience with drug cases, as well as sort of a big picture type management of these same cases now that we're going through this relative sea change of policies.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Very good. And Matt, same question. Uh, Go ahead and tell us about yourself, your practice, and uh, your involvement in narcotics narcotics cases, I should say.
2: So I am a Midwest transplant. I grew up in Michigan. I spent some time living in Chicago, actually. Um, Lived across from Wrigley Field for a couple years before law school. Um, But I came out here to go to the Lewis and Clark Law School because I had it in mind that I would be an environmental lawyer. Um, Took some environmental law classes out here and realized that, well, it's a a very noble cause that I can very much get behind, the type of work that involved um, was not quite exciting enough to keep me interested, I, I think I'd say. Um, and the summer after my second year, I did a law clerk position at the Federal Public Defender uh, here in town. I nod that way because <laughs> I can see the office out my, out my window here. Um, and sort of never looked back, um, kind of found criminal defense to scratch a number of my itches, uh, whether it be fighting for the underdog or a healthy mistrust of my government or my own personal feelings about the drug war um, or race as it relates to justice and, or economic status as it relates to justice. Um, so at that point, I kind of just focused on criminal defense as a career. I got out of law school uh, and worked for a couple years with uh, my current law partner, a guy named Michael Levine, who at that time was just coming out of being an assistant federal public defender for many, many years uh, and coming to private practice for the first time. And he kind of took me on uh, as a young associate. I worked a couple years for him. uh, And then Went to the organization that Thalia works for, Metropolitan Public Defender, uh, to get some trial work uh, and to get some kind of in the in the trenches experience as a public defender. It's funny; I feel like just about any criminal defense in in Portland or our surrounding area, if they're you know worth their salt at all, they've spent a number of years at Metropolitan Public Defender, where Thalia is. It's a it's a really great organization and kind of a a model for how public defense can be handled in large metropolitan areas. Um, I worked there for a couple years and uh, my wife and I got uh, got ready to have our first child and um, the public defender schedule, I, I decided wasn't as conducive uh, to being a dad as I, as I wanted it to be. So I went back uh, and rejoined Mike Levine um, as a partner this time and he and I have been doing pretty much exclusively criminal defense work for together for the better part of probably 12 years at this point. Um, Today, my current practice is a mix. I do probably half of my caseload are federal court-appointed cases. I'm a member of the Criminal Justice Act panel, which is a group of attorneys here uh, that have been vetted by the courts and the federal defender system who are qualified to take on federal Public defense cases, so that's about half of my caseload, and the other half are private retained uh, state cases in Oregon. Um, From the perspective of my interaction with the drug laws here, uh, Thalia is going to be the expert on the state stuff. I I handle a lot of drug cases in my federal practice. Um, I do not do any more very many uh, state drug cases, and as we go into this, we can probably talk about why that is and. Um, but but when we're when we're talking about drugs, my area of expertise would be certainly with respect to, to federal prosecutions,
0: right? And one thing that you mentioned you mentioned the drug war, and that's sort of how we I want to frame in, Uh, so I want to frame this conversation. Uh, a significant portion of the nation sees the war on drugs as essentially a failed attempt at what should have been handled as a public health crisis uh, from the beginning. So, in terms of the war on drugs or other influences, what makes Oregon unique in the fact that they pursued this decriminalization? Like, what uh, what do you two see as what drove this movement?
1: I guess um, it is unique, and I think it's absolutely the first step in the very right direction. And I hope very much that other states can see and watch how it works and follow um, i think there were a lot of people on the ground seeing what you see every day which is that sud is a public health issue and should be treated as such and um, they there were people who were involved with central city concern and other um, treatment uh, operations that said we need to change how we're doing this and maybe Matt knows a little bit more of the movement that that took this on um, and the organizations that took this on, but they did a lot of groundwork. they they went around and educated people about why this is the way that we should be handling um, sudden and, and small possession use and um, and and they did it and they did it right because, they came out with a mandate. I think it passed ballot measure 110 passed by 58%, um, which is significant.
0: And Matt, same question. Yeah, I,
2: I think the, um, well, you probably know, or maybe you don't know, but I mean, Portland in general in Oregon has a fairly lengthy history of embracing the counterculture. Um, I think it was one of the first states that had municipalities to legalize marijuana back in the 70s, along with Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, And, you know, they were, we had one of the first assisted suicide laws. Um, There's always been kind of an undercurrent here of we're willing to experiment and uh, see how things go. Um, And that's, Thalia mentioned it was a, a ballot measure that passed. That's something that I think it's important to point out about this. This was our decriminalization law. Um and we should we should specify that. A lot of people say the Oregon's just legalized drugs and um and they haven't. It's decriminalized, which means it's taken the criminal penalties out of the game uh in some sense. Um but I think you know there's always been a push to do that sort of experimentation here, and this was a measure that was not passed by our legislature. It was uh Oregon has a system that allows uh groups to put Ballot measures in the elections for voters to directly vote on as referendums, uh, and the Oregon voters got behind this one. I think uh, as a result of a lot of the, the grassroots efforts. I know I don't know a ton of the players involved. I know the Drug Pol- Policy Alliance was was highly involved for a number of years pushing this kind of thing, um, but. You know, we were one of the first states to legalize recreational marijuana, and I think we built um, and have done that very successfully, I think. Um, we've seen a, a significant reduction in the number of arrests um, for that sort of thing. Uh, there's been a significant amount of revenue that have that's come into the state through taxes. Um, so, you know, laying that groundwork for it and showing people that when we do this sort of thing in a smart and deliberate sort of way... Um it can work. And that's I think that that was the underpinnings of it here. It's just this was the right place to try it because we've tried this sort of thing in the past. Um, and there was a push for it. I mean there's no there's no secret that people that, um, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a, a blight on Oregon's reputation, I think, in that our and I think this is probably true for many states, but um, our biggest mental health and treatment provider, uh, in the state is our department of corrections and that's, that's not how things should be. Right. Um, I mean, there's just kind of this revolving door, low level addicts, people who have uh, significant substance abuse issues were just not getting the help they needed to break out of that cycle. And we instead just filling up jail cells for very short periods of time, um, which certainly wasn't doing anything to reduce recidivism afterwards.
0: Now that brings up another, uh, tangential to this as far as decriminalizing you know drugs right now but as far as the prisons the jails has that changed i guess what's going on once they are incarcerated like the people that have been put into jail or prison for these kind of offenses like has that had any impact on their sentences or anything along that line
1: Well, I will say at the state level, it's kind of hard to say the incarceration impacts because we also had the pandemic going at the same time. And there, especially in Multnomah County, um, these kinds of offenses would never have been brought into the jail during the pandemic. There was efforts made at the outset to make sure that you were not bringing in people for low-level PCS crimes. Uh, That would just be um, a nightmare (laughs) for the population inside the jail, the um, staff, the people outside the the jail. So um, from the outset, that was one of the crimes that they were not going to bring anyone in on. They were doing sight and lose instead. But the number of arrests on those have dropped just dramatically, and you've just cleared out a whole host of cases um, that were really clogging up our system. You know, outstanding warrants were, which creates a lot of time and money around trying to track people down for these sorts of um, things. It really has made a tremendous difference on who's coming in to the jail. Um, and so, and that, and that's an important uh, piece of this. And I will say that even though ballot measure 110 was not retroactive in any way, it didn't mean that if you had been previously charged with a low-level PCS, that you would be able to get um, a violation offer necessarily on your case. I will say that, Pretty much right away, um, the Multnomah County District Attorney's office took a look at that and took a look at the mandate and said, "Okay, we're not going to pr- prosecute these outstanding cases. We're going to give you the same offer you would have had had you picked this up today." And well, it's not—it's not in my nature or my um, or my practice to commend the DAs very often. Um, I will say that you know. That was the right move. Right. It seems so obvious to, to me, but that there are certainly other um, district attorneys out there that may have stopped charging them, but didn't go back and say, OK, if you would have gotten a violation offer or earned dismissal, um, we will give that to you now.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, law enforcement themselves? Like, is have they been supportive? And this goes for, you know, any of the, the wide range of other associated crimes so when you have with, you know, with narcotics, uh, have they been supportive of it or have they sort of been less than enthusiastic about the the new rules? Well, I, I, I can't speak
2: for what things are like sort of on the ground um, in individual patrol areas. I, I know that as we were leading up to the election with this referendum that were, I mean, those were the agencies that were very vocal uh, in coming out against this sort of referendum. Um, you know, the dangers that it would lead to increased property crimes and higher levels of overdoses and uh, you know, more of a, of a more of a strain on an already very strained, group of individuals and personnel and and system. Um, In practice, I don't know that we've seen that. Like I said, it's kind of hard for me to speak to it. Again, it's it's really hard to track the effectiveness of something like this during the last couple of years because, I mean, prosecutions across the board, both in state and federal, are down. Um, And that's a result of the pandemic. That's it. It could be people are not out committing crimes as much as they have been in the past. It's also a function, I think, at least in Multnomah County. Um, we have recently elected a, a new and fairly progressive DA in the grand scheme of things. I, I know Thaylee's, uh, rolling her eyes a little bit and I, I agree. Mr. Schmidt has not, uh, has not delivered on every promise he made during his campaigns, but it's a significant sea change. I think when he did, when he did come in um, and there were decisions made as a, as a response to the pandemic out of his office, certainly to not charge, um, not arrest, not holding custody uh, individuals charged with certain crimes, but that was more a result of, we don't want to bring people into our jail system in our court system, unless it's absolutely necessary given the pandemic. So, uh, I think we still need a couple of years before we can really see what, what the effectiveness is um, kind of from a global data standpoint. Um, Thalia, you may be able to speak to more anecdotally what you're seeing these days, like in practice.
1: Yeah. From some of the meetings I've attended, what's been noted and that, and I can't say exactly what is what to attribute it to is that, even though, for example, this um, has been in place since the beginning of February, I think in Multnomah County they've been tracking. So they've been tracking citations. How many citations are being issued by county um, for for these? Uh, for like, if it's meth, it's less than two ounces. If it's heroin, it's less than an ounce. So small personal user amounts of um, drugs. And I think the last I had heard in Multnomah County, the number of citations had been five. So what that says is that they are actually not doing these citations very much at all. And what seems to be the issue is that the the police officers don't think it's worth their time and energy to pursue that, to spend the time uh, just for just to write out and make that contact and write out a uh, citation. The problem with that is part of the way this is supposed to work is that um, through getting that citation, the person is then uh, may, is then has the choice to either get a fine for that violation or they have the ability to um, call a, um, a uh, a hotline that connects them for an assessment that, and then they can potentially get connected to services. That's the whole impetus behind this is, okay, let's get people connected to services that they need to address these without the punitive um, incarceration aspect of it. And if if they're not even issuing citations, then it doesn't start that process at all. So for whatever reason, Portland police are not issuing these citations for the most part.
0: And that makes it really hard, I would imagine, to even gauge how effective the program is at all. Um, I know one thing that, one of the concerns that I had been reading about in preparation for our discussion was the concept of narco-tourism as far as people coming in from out of state for the specific purpose of having access to decriminalized narcotics Uh, and if there's no citations being passed out it's hard to even gauge if that's something that other states would have to consider if they look at a measure like this
1: yeah i mean it's still illegal to deal any of these drugs right so you still have the same like there's no there's no, it's not like with marijuana, where we've actually truly, truly legalized it by the state level, lo- at the state level, and you can go into any dispensary and and, and buy it. So it's, it, the access still is not just like, you can just show up, and I mean, I guess there's places you could probably walk and try to find um, <laughs> something, but that, that act of dealing would still be illegal, and if the police are watching that would still be something they could absolutely arrest on.
2: Um, yeah, I think that's a more of a product of the meme culture than than what's really happening. Um, certainly, we have a we have a cannabis tourism trade here that's you know very robust and embraced, and uh, you know our cannabis industry here doesn't make any bones about it. Come to Oregon, we've got you know we've got better weed than anyone else. Um, but you're not you're not seeing anything close to that in terms of these drugs that were decriminalized. And again, it's not, it's still very much illegal to, you know, be out on the street passing these drugs along. Um, I I mean, in my practice, it's of my federal practice, 70% of the cases that I get are large scale drug distribution cases carrying significant mandatory minimum prison penalties, um, you know, and well, ostensibly, the the feds pick up these cases if they're uh, always if they're, you know, crossing state lines, or if there's a connection to cartels in Mexico or things like that. Um, but that I mean, it's not hard for them to make that connection. In any case, uh, it's, it's a very rare situation where uh, hard drugs, the kinds that we're talking about here, that have been decriminalized, were were produced in Oregon. So, um, I mean, people out here that are engaged in that sort of business are still very much under the watchful eye of the federal government and law enforcement. Um, and I think that was the right way to do it. Actually, I mean, it's uh, the point of the measure was to get folks that have a substance abuse disorder into the kind of treatment they need. Um, and out of the jails, um, but it wasn't to, you know, open up a kind of free range drug market here. Um, and certainly, I think, like like Thalia pointed out, the at least one of those hoped for goals has has happened. We've certainly seen a lower level of arrests and incarceration as a result of this. Whether we're seeing more people that need it get into the treatment that that they should be getting into. Um, that's hard to say. In part because officers aren't uh, aren't enforcing the new law because there is some things to be enforced still. It's it's still you know it's still illegal to to possess these things. It's just not not criminally illegal.
1: Yeah, I thought those I thought those were great points, Matt. And and I think the hope is that the infrastructure is going to be really built up around um, around treatment because part of how they Did part of the ballot measure also paired it with funding and they're taking funding from kind of excessive taxes from marijuana. So anything that over like $11,250,000 that comes in through taxes on marijuana goes directly to um, funding treatment around this program which is fantastic to like take something from that and build it into something where people are there, first of all, voluntarily, presumably and hopefully, and um, and provides ac- access to housing. Uh, I know that um, there's a Senate bill, it's Senate bill 755 is the one that is supposed to pass that helps to implement uh, ballot measure 110. And part of that is using money for housing. So um, houselessness is definitely an issue that we have in, in Multnomah County in and Portland and, and completely wrapped up um, in, in the need for, um, in when you're looking at how to help someone and, and give them treatment, um, ha- providing that component can make all the difference for uh-huh. someone.
0: One thing that was that was brought up was as far as the conversation between legalization and decriminalization, and so when you have thinking specifically about legalization about uh, marijuana specifically, uh, President Biden it made the news that his administration was, uh, and I, I forget the specifics, but there was. Uh, concerns within specific communities about the administration's attitude towards marijuana use in some of the people that were trying to come aboard his administration. And that brings up another topic that you just have to bring up when you talk about um, legalization, and that's sort of the conflict between the federal and the state law when it comes to marijuana specifically. Have either one of you ran into issues where that came into play?
2: Well, it, I get all the time. I'm sure that's the answer for Thalia too. I mean, there's, there's always the, the conflict between federal and state laws. Um, you know, from from that standpoint of what Oregon is trying to do with the decriminalization, it's I mean, it's a concept we all learn in law school, right, that the state, the, the idea of federalism is that the states can act as this sort of experimental laboratories to see what works and what doesn't before the feds get on board. Um, and I think that that's that's going to happen, at least certainly with respect to, to cannabis legalization. I think that's only a few years away at the federal level at this point. Um, But the federal government is a very slow moving beast. Uh, It is a very difficult thing to turn to the other direction. Um, I know that, you know, there's anytime somebody here is uh, convicted of a state crime, not any time, but often when people here are convicted of a state crime, there's often a probation area supervision component that comes with that. And there's always a big question and push about, uh, you know, it's a standard probation condition that you have to obey all laws. Um, and, but I live in Oregon, right? And the voters here say I have a right to have recreate, uh, medical marijuana and the feds say I can't and there's... I'm sure that there's, there's conflicts that go on all the time between what people are allowed to do on a uh, probationary sentence for if they have a prescription for something that's illegal in the federal, uh, in the federal realm. And I think some courts Thalia, again, I, I don't hate to push this back to you, but I, I understand that there are some courts that are just uh, sort of explicitly allowing it um, in other situations where your probation officer just kind of looks the other way. and. Um, you know, But from a, from a federal standpoint, there's always, uh, there's always the danger of pro- – there's no law on the books. And in, in fact, the Supreme Court just uh, denied a push uh, in a recent case whose name escapes me. Um, but there's no law that says that the feds can't prosecute you for a case that the state also prosecuted you for. And we do see that here in some sense. Uh, and often there's there's supposedly an unwritten policy here that only one sovereign is going to prosecute you. And so if the state does it, the feds won't. And if the feds do it, then you won't see a county in Oregon picking up the prosecution. Uh, in my experience, what that turns into is leverage and a bargaining chip. Um, depending on the charges and the quantities involved, sometimes... A client might actually be better off, even with the new decriminalization laws. A client might be better off in federal court on a drug case, depending on some of the quantities involved and the prosecutor's approach to it. Um, and there are times where that's used as leverage against a client. Hey, if you can you can deal with us, or we're just going to let the state prosecute it. Um, so it hasn't it hasn't been. Um, as often as the case, these policies don't that look okay on paper often end up be, being used against criminal defendants
1: it's so it's interesting going to marijuana, i like I can't even think of a marijuana case that's come into state court in I don't know so long like we haven't we just i guess the place you might see it is in treatment courts or in, on probation violations like oh. They have, um, a positive UA for marijuana. I, I think there, I, I'm pretty sure there was a state court case that said, look, if you have a medical marijuana card for one, you can't even order it as a condition of probation that they not, um, use marijuana because they have, It's a, it's been deemed, um, uh, med- med- necessary for their medical treatment. Um, I, in treatment courts, I've seen it where they're like, well, it's just marijuana. And like, it's like, well, they're, you know, you, they're not using heroin, like it's marijuana and it's like a celebration and let's graduate them. <laughs> like this is, this is a vast improvement from where they had been so long ago. Um, let's move them forward in this, in this treatment program, because we're not going to penalize that. Um so, and, and that's more probably Multnomah County, you get out to Washington County, and it doesn't matter at nearly as much if you, they believe that, you know, if, if it violates a law, federal law, certain judges, I can think of one specifically, uh, will say that, will that's a violation of federal law. I don't care if it's completely legal here, so I will violate you for that, and so you, you have to have um, contested hearings around that. Um, I, in, and then in, do you even see that in federal court? That I mean, they must ha- they'd have to have a very a huge quantity for marijuana.
2: Oh no, they're coming after oh, it, it still I in federal court. Stuff? I've got <sighs> yes, it still happens in federal court. Um, usually, when uh, an individual or organization is uh, blatantly flaunting the distribution laws, what, what is allowed, um, in terms of being a licensed provider or a licensed grower in the industry. Um, they very much are prosecuting cases where Oregon weed is being shipped or transported to other jurisdictions. Um, and the process, I I mean, I was just working on, I'm working on one right now. Uh, and the U S attorneys here Uh, Very much still think these are prison eligible offenses, Um, certainly not to the extent they were. But uh, yeah, it's it's as I said, the the federal the beast of the federal criminal justice system is a very difficult thing to turn. Um, And yeah, they are still very much where it's appropriate in that situation where they're seeing large quantities being shipped out. Uh, They are absolutely going after these folks
0: mm-hmm and Thalia you brought up an interesting point and something I hadn't thought about until now uh I like Matt home state of Michigan um and so when you think of Michigan there's Detroit and then there's sort of outside of Detroit and so like <laughs> in, in Illinois there's Chicago and then there's outside of Chicago does that same not being from there I, I can't speak on it but is that same sort of ex, um, phenomenon happen out there.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, Multnomah County is, has a lot more for, for the most part has a lot more kind of liberal policies, um, from that DA's office. Although it'll, it'll surprise you what they'll go really hard on property crimes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure around property crimes or especially, um, unlawful uh, use of a motor vehicle, UUMVs, they go really hard after those, Um, whereas other places, that's not the focus nearly as much. But yes, um, outside of Multnomah County and and just over west, you get to Hillsborough, which is Washington County, which is, as Matt will confirm for me, one of the the most conservative um, counties it's where justice goes to Yeah, it's it, it's it's a it's a dark place in that way. So how, how you, does
0: the how does the rest of the state how did they react to this to this um, measure on the ballot?
2: I think you you described it very well, Lenny, comparing it to Michigan. There's it's it, like Michigan has Detroit and Ann Arbor and. East Lansing to a lesser extent, you know where the college kids are, um, and the population centers. And that is the those are these liberal kind of left-leaning pockets of voters amongst a vastly conservative, wider at least geographic area. Um and Portland and Oregon is the same way. You've got Portland and uh that metropolitan area, and then there's Eugene, which is kind of south of here, which is where the University of Oregon is. Um and to a lesser extent, I think Corvallis, which is where Oregon State is, uh, that those are our population centers and our pockets of liberal left leaning voters and the surrounding areas are um, generally much more conservative. Uh, and I think, I mean, every time we have an election, whether it's election of candidates or ballot measures like this, that's always, that's always seems to be the biggest uh Kind of conflict in the voters is people from rural areas outside the populations centers always complaining that the policies of Portland and these liberal pockets in between are, are what controls the policies in the state and how uh, unfair that is and um, which I think is a valid argument certainly um, and I also think it's why you know even when you get these things passed in practice I mean it really is all about how these new laws are enforced or not enforced. I mean, we joke about this place called Washington County, um, but it is shocking. I mean, part Portland, the city, the metropolitan city of Portland actually it crosses into three different counties, Multnomah County, Clackamas County, and Washington County. And whereas Multnomah County is, I mean, as things go, it's probably the best place to be a criminal defendant if you have to be charged by a prosecutor. Um, in the state and Washington County is hands down no question about it the worst place to be facing criminal charges um, and that's a, a function of the the locality politics i think uh, more than anything else
0: so when earlier we were talking about the the police not giving out the citation so depending on that specific jurisdiction there's other jurisdictions that might be giving out citations like you know Reese's cups but yeah. it's just the locals, they're the ones that are, they see other, other issues are, take bigger priorities in writing these citations, probably.
2: Yes, that, that's, I mean, I think that what, the last thing you said is an understatement right now. There's, um, particularly in Portland proper, there are, at least in law enforcement's eyes, several other issues that are taking significant priority over over how they're enforcing the new decriminalization laws
0: Mm -hmm. now in context of sort of the conversation that was going on this past summer um and continues to this very day as far as um the quote-unquote defunding the police conversation did that Again, did that conversation, did that impact this initiative when this was coming through? Was this seen as an opportunity to say, hey, we have all these resources going to law enforcement for these narcotics. You know, we can put these funds in a different method. And this is a way that the that the voters found to sort of implement that thought process.
1: I, I mean, I think you're right. I think a spotlight has been put on how we do policing and our police. And I think increasingly people are becoming aware that there are some very deep seated problems in how that organization functions and and how it operates. And one maybe pretty easy and, and more palatable Thing that people could latch on to was this idea that when, and like you noted, defund the police can also mean how do we take out something that they should not no longer be working on so that they can use their resources in other ways. Um, and I think something that was probably pretty easy for people to recognize and, and learn about was, hey, substance use disorders low level use uh, possession we need to connect those people with resources why are we always throwing these pe- throwing people in jail using our, uh, our police officers instead of caseworkers to address the issues and get people connected um, with resources and I think that was a lot of what helped move this that I mean I, I think it's all I think it's all connected um, for sure, but this was kind of one that people started recognizing more and more that really substance use disorder is a public health issue and should not just be used as a criminal justice issue And because the only tool they have is jail. That's the tool. If you're not doing this jail, if you did this jail, you know, and if you've ever seen someone going through detox in jail, it's, it's heartbreaking, it's horrible. Um, and, and to criminalize a symptom of a disease like relapse is um, cruel. And so I think that that was something that people could identify, understand, and pick out as, okay, let's do something different here. Finally, finally, because, you know what, if jail was working, we'd have cured all of all of substance use disorder. No one would have an, an, any addiction. Right. Um, so it finally, I think, took kind of the whole movement of looking at policing um, certainly, um, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, there was a, the protests I think people were finally listening and saying, "How can we actually do something instead of just protesting? What what can actually be done?" Um, and while this isn't directly related to that, it, it certainly has um, has far-reaching results. I mean, for one, the disparities in arrests that happen around drug use is undeniable. Uh, are you know? BIPOC population are way, way farther, um, arrested, way more frequently arrested and, um, and incarcerated for these kinds of crimes.
2: I mean, this has been a, well, this is honestly, it's been a, a process over a hundred, 200 years to, to start changing kind of the public perception of law enforcement in this country. And, uh, what its what its roots are, starting with the patrols that were really just out there to to round up slaves, um, and understanding that that's that's the roots, that's the basis of our of our current law enforcement system. And I think what it's really done is ideas that you know five, not even maybe three years ago were were shocking for certain people to hear. Um, Kind of the the upswell of support for Black Lives Matter and and that sort of social justice movements that began uh, in the wake of uh, began in earnest, I guess, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, um, really gave people an opportunity to start talking about these ideas that were previously shocking in ways that you know, it's not so shocking anymore. I mean, I think three years ago when people started talking about defunding the police, it was, what you're talking about abolishing the police, about, you know, what, what are we going to do for law enforcement? How are we going to enforce these crimes? Who's going to give out traffic tickets? But, but now Oregon has, here's, here's one way, right? Here's one way you can take a bunch of the money that they're spending on locking up low-level and uh, drug users and marginalized members of our community and take that chunk of funds, and put it towards helping those people instead of locking them up. And guess what? The police force still exists. It's just not as bloated, and as uh, kind of all-encompassing as they used to be. Um, I mean, the real problem—it's a completely separate topic—but um, I think at least here in Portland, the Portland Police Bureau has a union that uh, is really drunk on power and has been really catered to by um, our mayor's office in the last several years, um, and really just militantly resistant to anybody suggesting that they should um, lose funding in any sense, or... Impose any sort of discipline on officers that have been uh, found to be in violation of policies or things like that. Um, so again, it's just I think what what the protests did over the last summer uh, here and nationwide is give people kind of a concrete example to be able to show here. Here's one. Here's a way that here's what defunding really means. Uh, so you can see we're not talking about uh, you know this lawless. Anarchical society. We're talking about you know deliberate, almost surgical changes to where the money comes from and what it what it's used for. Um, whereas previously, maybe you know that wasn't even a conversation many people were willing to even engage in.
0: It's when you brought up the the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. Uh, my wife and I we actually went over there for about a week just to just to watch it, just to learn, just to sort of see what was happening over there. And one of the things that I took away from it was the ideas that were being talked about by the different folks, the different speakers, they do, they do seem, you know, at first, cause I'm prior law enforcement. So a lot of the things that throughout this entire year, these, these are things that I'm just learning, but the different aspects of society that people talk about that do sort of have that undertone of hey this is the way this is the status quo but it could be better you know everything ranging from you know i was talking to somebody about um you know single family housing zoning you know that in of itself it doesn't seem like a big deal but when you talk about specific communities specific groups and especially in inner cities that can definitely be you know impactful on marginalized communities because that affects housing and when you i think we talked about housing here earlier today you know, housing builds into it. Just this, you know, narcotics here, that builds into it. It all builds into a society that if it's not impacting you directly, it's really hard to see it through someone else's eyes. So that's that's the biggest takeaway that I took from um, those protests this summer, definitely. Um, one last question um, before we cut you all loose for the day. Um, Do you think that there's pressure on Oregon uh, in a sense of, is there pressure that they do this decriminalization correctly, that there's um, positive outcomes, that there's the impact that they're looking for? Do you feel like there's pressure being placed on the state right now?
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think, I think people are watching and I think there's, I think the legislature's feeling that um, in the implementation and, you know, I go to some of these policy meetings and, and it's kind of hinted at, you know, like, if this doesn't go well, if it doesn't roll out right, if it if if it's not done properly or or you don't get the right buy-in, then it collapses and people will say, well, that wasn't worth, that was a mistake and everything goes back or changes. Uh, to something much worse. Um, so, yeah, I think there's pressure to do it right, and and we and we should, right? Like, let's do it right so we can be a model uh, for other places.
2: Yeah, it's pressure, but it's sort of, I think, as Oregonians, it's pressure that we kind of bring upon ourselves, and it's something that that has. Uh, a community we we want we want that pressure and it's not like we're doing this in a vacuum right i mean these this sort of model has been it's the dutch model right it's been tested in european countries and some south american localities uh for many many years so it's not like we don't know this works um it's just a function of like thalia said making sure that the right people are buying into it um and the funding that is required for it is coming from and ending up uh in the right place um the other aspect of it that i see is there's pressure to get things right but it's not a ton of pressure because it's not it's not going to be worse than it was i mean the the state of the the drug laws at least in, in the way they were being enforced and who they were being enforced against uh in portland which i think was a microcosm for all of oregon and frankly for any community that has a, any level of a BIPOC population in Mm. it. Um, it was horrible. It, I mean, it's a revolving door in the jails. Nobody's getting help. Uh, you're, you're locking up your community members instead of, uh, getting them the treatment they need. And that of course leads to more property crimes. It leads to, you know, more kids growing up without consistent, parent figures in their lives. It leads to less of an economic growth in these neighborhoods. I mean, nothing was working. Um, So it was sort of like, yeah, we want to get this right, but it, you know, look where we are. It's not going to, it's not going to get worse from here. We got to try something. Um,
1: And also I, I feel like already it's like once you just do it, once it starts, you're like, Oh, so the sky didn't fall, (laughs) you know, like this is, this is fine. Like it's, everything's, you know, we're still, we're all still here and everything's operating. So part of it's also like, okay, it's already by starting it, hopefully, I mean, you can't go all the way back because you've seen that like, oh, not locking people up for this isn't such a bad thing. uh, Mm -hmm. After all, I, I kind of, I, that's one of my hopes. I mean, this is something tangential, but with the pandemic too, like all of a sudden we weren't putting people in jail pre-trial that we were putting just routinely over and over again in jail pre-trial. And it's been fine, (laughs) like that's been fine. And so I hope, I hope in some respects, like there's certain parts where you, I hope we never go back. I hope you can see that we don't need to ever go back to putting people for those kinds of crimes for in those situations in jail, pre-trial, because you did it before and, and the sky didn't fall.
2: We're all still. Yeah. It turns out people really will show up for their court dates if you tell
0: them to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thank you both for, uh, for joining me today on the episode. Um, If you had any resources or if anybody in the audience was interested in looking forward into this topic, I know we talked about the uh, drug, the Drug Policy Alliance or the Alliance for Drug Policy. Um, what other uh, resources would you direct folks to if they were interested in this topic?
2: Well, I stump for criminal defense. Getting into criminal defense is a career. It, it opens all kinds of doors for that sort of advocacy, whether it's in court or uh, you know being part of. Uh, we've got a wonderful, the Oregon criminal defense lawyers association. It's, uh, we've got, uh, excellent political lobbyists out here. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's a, it's certainly an area that needs talented folks. Um, it's the harder, I I think it's, it's the harder path to take, uh, when you're, when you're talking about trying to do reform in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Um, it's also a lot more fun, um, you know, people ask me what the best part of my job is, and it's my clients. I just, you know, if you if you're a prosecutor, you don't have clients. You're you're working for the state. Your client is always the same. It's this big amorphous sort of. You're the crusader for mm-hmm. the community as a whole. But you know, Thalia and I get to talk to these individual clients and affect people's lives on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's how you can effectuate change in these kinds of areas. You got you got to see what these people are going through. Um, before you can speak to how, to how to help them and how to change it. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, that's my pitch. It's not really an answer to your question, but <laughs> boy, criminal defense, we really, we need more and more talented. I mean, we have plenty, but it, we always need more. We need, we need talented people who are willing to, to step up to, you know, what is not always considered the uh, most respectful of career choices, I guess, by, right. by a lot of the community. Whereas I feel like yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing more respectful than, and, and admirable than than what we do and who we fight for. It's
1: like superheroes, right? Like you're defending yeah. the public. <laughs> I just echo what Matt said. You nailed it with, it with saying it's it's the career. It's a fantastic career choice. And yes, if you want uh, to get deep into these kinds of issues and understanding those, I mean, do an internship at your local public defender's office, um, reach out and see, you know, different projects that are out there, uh, that advocate for our, these clients because understanding what, what they all go through and what they are facing is, is the first step.
0: Absolutely. Well, with that, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, we look forward to hearing from you again someday. Thanks, Thanks Lynn. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podbiket.